0: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the topics in our beautiful game. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me as always is transfer guru Duncan Castles. I'm delighted to welcome back an old friend of the Transfer Window podcast, Mr Liam Resenia, a man with more clubs than Tiger Woods, but currently uh, doing his first stint of coaching in the big bad world of the EFL
1: as assistant specialist coach at Derby County. Welcome back, Liam. Nice to to be back. Thanks for having me. And In this difficult time, it's always good to talk. I'm looking forward to the conversation with you guys.
0: Nice, no, absolutely, absolutely it is. And, and that's what we do best. That's what our listeners enjoy is the debate. And, of course, uh, join us uh, in all our social media channels. You know where to find us. We'll start with just a little bit of transfer news for you because it's our understanding that the process uh, of the potential move between clubs of Lautaro uh, Martinez and Sergio Aguero has begun. This is on the back of um, Aguero's desire uh, to try uh, and find a way to win the Champions League, give himself the best possible chance before his very illustrious career uh, takes its turn to the twilight. Obviously, Manchester City are currently um, under the threat of serving a two-season ban from UEFA's Blue Ribbon competition. And uh, City uh, would allow Aguero to leave uh, in the right circumstances, albeit they would prefer him to stay. Um, Lothar Martinez is a player that City very much uh, like, and there's a possibility that in the new reality that is football, with uh, reports of £1.6 billion being wiped off the value of Premier League squads, that a deal would be uh, a good uh, a good one for City, getting a 22-year-old Argentina international, obviously for the veteran Aguero um, no one uh, as yet has begun talking on financial terms. It's simply been a proposal put to the representatives of both players. Duncan, this seems like a kind of kind of logical um, move, although one I think which, given Aguero's status with City fans, would be alarming, I think, for for them, uh, whether or not they agree with the players' desire to give themselves the best chance of winning the Champions League.
2: It fits with the the pattern that Manchester City have used to build... The squad they have, in the sense that they they have identified talents of Martin as his age or around Martin as his age. He's, he's 22. Will be will turn 23 in August, um, and secured them uh, before they reached the very top of the game and turned them into to top players at City. Um, I think the problem with this particular deal is there is a lot of interest in Lautaro Martínez. Inter would have to be persuaded to let him go for a start. There has been discussions that might happen. He has what was a an, a relatively accessible um, release clause under the previous um, financial reality, whether it's so accessible now is a, a, another matter. But you have clubs like Barcelona um, actively targeting the player um, and therefore that issue of Champions League football becomes a, a complexity for Manchester City when they have to go up against teams like Barcelona who have historically had the advantage over English clubs in hiring talents of 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 that category. Um, in terms of Aguero going to Inter, that would certainly fit with the way Antonio Conte has operated as, as manager, not just at Inter but at Chelsea in the sense that he... He's consistently asked for absolute finished talents um, who can immediately go into his team and perform and hasn't had any hesitation over over the age of the player. So you can see elements of of that which might be attractive to um, City and to Inter. But again, I, I would emphasise, I think, the, the difficulty City have got in persuading players to come to them until they know what is happening with their Champions League ban.
0: Liam, have you seen much of Martínez in the last few months? I mean, would you rate him as a player who could do well in the Premier League? Uh, He's he's obviously a slight striker rather than um, a
1: sort of traditional big number nine. Uh, But of course, that's exactly what he'd be replacing in Aguero. Yeah, I think I think when you talk about the physical characteristics of players now, I think the game has evolved, and I think uh, Martinez is someone who, what, what I really like about him is his, his change of he can change speed so quickly. He's got a low center of gravity. Not only can he score goals, but he's very creative, and I can see why a team like Manchester City, with the way that they play, he, he would suit them down to the ground. And in, in the case of Aguero, I think he's been at Manchester City for for so long now, and he's done everything that he could possibly do to, to help this club win, win the Champions League. And with, with this impending ban loon, looming over their heads, you can see why it might be the perfect time for Manchester City to use him almost as a bargaining chip to get the best young talent they, they can do. And, and, and as Duncan's rightly said, that's the way they've always wanted to go. They like to develop players before they are stars. Um, where they're on the brink I think Martinez is one of those players of being on the brink of being an, an absolutely world class footballer so it, it's, a, it's a transfer that makes sense in many ways again Antonio Conte as Duncan's rightly said again likes to bring in almost a finished product so um, I can see a lot of, of legs in this story and I can, I can see why it, it makes sense
0: Well, we brought you up to date, people, on the situation regarding the pandemic and all of the complications for football uh, regarding the Premier League on our Wednesday podcast this week. Given that we are privileged to have uh, uh, Liam uh, with us today, we're going to focus a bit more on the EFL and the problems in particular and the particular, the actual, you know, different problems faced by the Championship, uh, uh, as well as Leagues 1 and 2. Um, a proposal made by Rick Parry, Liam, uh, in the last 24 hours with regards to a possibility of finishing the 19-2020 season um, through the summer months um, is being looked over, obviously, by all EFL clubs. A lot of logistical problems um, are addressed, but not all, I think, are necessarily um. As easily resolvable as perhaps it looks like in the letter that Rick Parry sent. On looking through that, would you say that there are sensible um, potential ways of uh, getting the season finished, or do you think there's maybe more to it than just perhaps uh, you know one letter and everyone agreeing that yeah this is the right way forward?
1: Uh, no, that's a really good question, Ian. I think. We're living in unprecedented times, and I think at times like this, you, you need to be adaptable. You know, We all need to be willing as professionals within the game, with we're, we're board members, chief executives. We have to be adaptable, have a, com- uh, a combined input and a, c- collaborate with each other about what the best way to move forward is. Um, from, a, from an EFL coach's point of view, I can see why there's a desperation on the part of the EFL to have the season completed, because this, in terms of finance, there's so much money involved. A lot of teams in the championship for years now have gambled on transfer, wage, uh, transfer funds, wages, to get into the Premier League and, and the riches that are on offer there. So for a for teams not to complete the season and almost go a year behind, it would be hugely detrimental to, to the clubs, especially in the championship. And that's why there's a big, big push to try and get the season um, ended and completed in, in any way possible.
2: Now, Liam, the, uh, this this letter from Rick Parry suggesting that they could complete the season in its entirety with playoff matches and a final, um, in fifty six days, once they are able to to start playing it again. The the instruction was that training should halt now and shouldn't resume before May sixteenth, on the same day that the letter came out. the The, the Scottish Football Association. Uh, made an announcement that there would be no football played in Scotland of any type until June 10th at the earliest. And they were citing uh, government advice that the ban on public gatherings would extend for 13 weeks at least, which would take us to 10th June. In a best case scenario, Uh, which would, if you could get the Football League plan to work, and and as Ian says, there's lots of logistical issues here. We're talking about closed-doors games. You would need um, NHS medical staff to be present at games when they they might, um, were almost certainly still going to be required for the pandemic. Um, We'd allow completion if everything worked by August the 6th. Um, Do you see that as being realistic or... Still, a very optimistic way of 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 trying to get this solution at which, as you you mentioned, is so important to the Efl clubs of of retrain, retaining that opportunity to get access to Premier League cash
1: i think again that's a, it's, it's a question yeah it's based on um, optimism because I think you need to be optimistic in in difficult times like this, um, but yeah, there has to be a sense of realism behind the plans as well and I think what's key is that there's so many different factors that come into you know, the timing of games, like you, as you say, the, the banning of social gatherings, that there has, we have to be adaptable in this process. And if we set a plan in stone now, I'm sure it will change in two weeks' time, in a month's time, in two months' time. So I think there has to be a plan that is achievable, but within that, there has to be scope for adaptability. And if all clubs are willing to do that, then I'm sure that the season can get completed at some time. And it's going to be a real difficult challenge. It's going to be a difficult ask for everyone involved. But I think we're all now very understanding that we need to, you know, give up certain things and compromise on certain things for the bigger picture. And if everybody has that kind of attitude, I'm, I'm sure we can come to some kind of agreement and some kind of plan moving forwards.
0: Possibly in the greatest difficulty in this is the unpredictability day by day, almost hour by hour. Of where the situation is at this moment in time as we speak, um, we're facing potentially another three weeks lockdown for everyone in the country. Um, that takes another three weeks, obviously away from the possibility of clubs training properly. Of um, three weeks of as well that um, that would be preparation time for a return to football as as well. As a former player, recently retired as now a coach who's working with elite professionals on a day-by-day basis, how do you see, um, from your point of view as a coach, how long would you reckon it's going to take to get your squad, not just match, well, i say match fit, but match sharp is almost impossible, but match fit, how long would that take before you could be confident playing your first game back, if you like, Um, and then being, um, as you said, optimistic (laughs) that uh, the players would be in the right physical and mental state to complete the season and, you know, obviously from Derby County's point of view, make the playoffs and, 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 and maybe beyond if possible.
1: I think the best way I can answer that question is to give you a minimum answer because in a, in a perfect world, all pre-seasons are planned over a six- to seven-week period. But I don't think we have that time in order to, to get things done and achieved in the, in the timeframe that, that's needed. And that, that's where adaptability needs to come in again. So in terms of that, I think you need a minimum. I would like a minimum as a coach of three weeks. I would like to have a training plan based on, on the first week of building base fitness, The second week, again, a mixture of base fitness and a tactical element and then used the last week almost as a sharpening and and a higher tempo of uh, really gearing towards match play. I think you can only work to a minimum of of three weeks before you start playing games again. Now, the difficulty is in pre-season, you can arrange friendly matches. In this this situation we're in, we're not going to be in a position to arrange friendly matches to get that match sharpness. So, that's where, again, what I, what I came back to is being adaptable. As players, it's not going to be perfect. As as coaches, we know that the situation we're going to be in is not going to be perfect. So I think the minimum time frame you can give on it is you, we will need three weeks to get our players in a position where they are safe in terms of playing football matches again and, and not picking up um, muscular injuries.
2: Do you think, you think that can be done in three weeks? Because this we've been discussing this for a few weeks in the podcast, and it's kind of an unprecedented situation in having that this length of layoff, then going into a, an abbreviated pre-season, as, as you point out, where you won't have friendly matches to work yeah. with. And then on top of that, going into the most demanding part of the season in terms of the pressure on the teams to perform, because we're talking about promotion, relegation, and titles when we're talking about the Premier League. So it's that period of time when coaches are likely to be more demanding of players because the, you know, the, the big money and the big prizes of promotion and relegation are on the line in these, you know, final rounds of competition that you're going to be asked to play when you come back from this very, very long layoff.
1: Yeah, but again, we're, we're, we're living in a time which, as you say, is unprecedented. And when you live in times of, of being unprecedented, you have to be adaptable. And you have to understand that we're sure. all in the same boat. So I think it's going to be a very, very different atmosphere when we get back to playing football again in terms of those pressures. I think that people are living now under, under more pressure. Mm-hmm. Are they safe from, from a terrible illness that, that can be fatal, people are losing loved ones? And I think there's going to be a real dose of actually what is important. And what is important is that, yes, getting promoted and, and all of the rich that come with it is, is extremely important. But I, I, I feel and I'm hopeful that there's going to be a real strong sense of spirit and pride. And I think football's huge in society and giving that to people. So I think it's going to be more of a, I don't think it's going to be highly pressured at all. And I think it's going to be a lot of, of games where people are just happy that the football can be played again. And and to be fair, I'm I'm quite excited about being a part of that. So and within that comes the fact that we're going to have a minimized schedule in terms of build up to games. We're going to be playing in possibly behind closed doors. Everything is kind of so up in the air at the moment. So I think all you can do is do the best job you can circumstances that aren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination and and take it from there because every club is going to be in exactly the same position in terms of players fitnesses. I know at the moment every single football club is doing everything possible to keep the players as prepared as possible uh, in terms of giving equipment to to the players at home in terms of I've got a rundown on, on on my laptop of every single player's data in terms of every session they've logged since they've been at home. So I think most clubs are going down that route of making sure that the players from a fitness point of view are as prepared as possible to go back to, to do something that they love to do.
2: That, that's a great point about the the sort of desire to get back to being involved and doing something again. Is that the general feeling you get from the players that you're working with and the, and the coaches you work with that they're, they just want to get back to a sense of normality, which is training and playing football again, whatever the context of it, of it's going to be.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think um, it's not until you, you come into a time like this that you realise how fortunate you are to be in a profession that, that you do. And I've spoken to a few of the players and they're itching to get back and they didn't realise how much they actually enjoy uh, the training element, the playing element. But I think even more so than that, what's been really apparent is the social element. Um, the fact that players can be together in a dressing room or they travel away together. So I think that there's a real understanding of not taking things for granted. And I think that's going to feed into a, a really different kind of atmosphere within the game and within society when we do get back to to hopefully normality in the future.
0: That's a very interesting point you make, Liam, about players taking stuff for granted because there is, rightly or wrongly, a public image of you know professional footballers who fettered and pampered and everything you know is done for them, etc., etc. and and yet here we are in this very very uh, abnormal situation where players lose all sense of routine, all sense of reality, uh, and their daily uh, routine, which allows them to function as a professional footballer and as a person. And you're right, I mean, I've been speaking to a lot of players during this time of lockdown when they've not been training, and I've never heard so many moans about from guys who actually don't like training that much who suddenly want to get back training. It's been quite bizarre to hear some guys who are like, oh, you know, during the regular season, oh, we're not going to get a day off this week or whatever, to suddenly, oh, I wish I was back in training. I'm so bored and I'm desperate just to get a bit of banter with the lads and, you know, get a game and everything else. And it's not just... The physical aspect. We have mental health to think about as well. In terms of, as I said, the huge disruption to players uh, in terms of their daily, weekly um, uh, normality. Um, and I'm sure, and from what I hear from players and coaches, is that you know the desperation to get back is absolutely genuine and and, and very much to the fore. I, I just wondered, you know, how that's going to impact when finally, you know, the powers that be say, right, okay, it's time you can go back to training um, and we're going to be working really hard to find a way to when you can start playing football again. I mean, with regards to -to day-to-day stuff for you, Liam, what does that include? I mean, I know you've been in touch with players and people at the club and everything else, but the bottom line is you don't have that um, social interaction as well as that professional interaction with players that you normally have on a daily basis. Um, and that obviously will have, you know, an effect on how players'
1: minds work as well as their bodies. Yeah, that's a that's a really fair question. Here. And I think we're all, I think in, in, in every industry at the moment, we're all in completely the same boat. Um, so it's not just in football that this is happening. But, but again, I think it's so difficult to explain, you know, I, I've recently retired from from football and speaking to the players at the moment, I'm saying, this is what retirement feels like. There's a huge void in your life where you've been so focused. Uh, every Saturday, you've got a focus to work towards every, every day in training, you're working to either your body to improve or technically to improve. Then all of a sudden that's taken away from you. So again, like I come back to the point that I think my job is going to be made a lot easier on the training pitch in terms of, plays buy-in and, and, and enthusiasm and being engaged in, in what we're trying to do just because they're going to be back doing what they love. And I think in this last period, over the last few years, I think a lot of football has been spoken not in, the, in those terms. There's been a lot of negativity, be it the amount of money that's involved in the game, be it negative stories about racism, or, or a lot of negativity has surrounded our game. And I think we forget, actually, football is a wonderful sport that we all love and it has a huge part to play. In society, because the amount of people I've, I've spoken to who aren't involved in the game, and say oh, I miss watching those live games on TV. I miss going to to games. We can make people happy, and we can bring some joy to people's lives that have been affected in a in a horrendous way by this this awful illness that is, is spread throughout the throughout the planet. So I think there's going to be a lot of uh, difficult times ahead. But if the optimist in me says there's going to be a lot of times where actually football can bring people back together and we can actually appreciate the game how it should be appreciated.
2: I don't want to bring you back to the negativity <laughs> after sentiments like that, but I think we, we have to address you know, one of the elements of negativity that's been discussed very broadly around football in the last couple of weeks. And that's the, the demand essentially from a government health minister that uh, footballers be the ones... To set an example and sacrifice their salary um, and uh, donate to the NHS when when other areas and other um, affluent areas of, of the, the UK economy haven't been targeted by government ministers in, in such a way. What, what's your feeling on that debate and um, the pressure and the, the kind of battle there's been between Premier League um, clubs in particular, but also in the EFL? Um, to impose salary cuts on players, um, which wouldn't necessarily go towards charitable causes, but would just come off the, the, the bottom line of, of the football club?
1: Yes, uh, I, think, I think your question has two points. In In terms of the, the statement that was made sur- surrounding footballers and, uh, and pay cuts, so what footballers aren't spoken about is the amount of money that they, in, in, their, in their PAYE, envelopes at the end of each month, how much they put into tax in, in terms of the money that they earn. Um, I, th- I think yeah. there are, you know, if you talk about society, a lot of people, you use the business tax rate to, um, to get around, you know, income tax and things like that. So in terms of that, I think it was a really naive statement. I think it's an easy, it's an easy brush to, to tar footballers with at times like this. And what I was really impressed with was the, was the response of not just footballers defending themselves, but everyone in society saying, well, hold on a minute, there are plenty of other people out there who aren't, haven't been paying their way for, for a long period of time. Um, the, second, the second question within what you said, like, there is a huge disparity between Premier League earnings and income and, and the rest of the EFL. And that's something that's been discussed for years as well. Um, obviously that's come to the fore now in the situation we find ourselves in. Um, And and I think that's a completely different thing because a player's salary is, he's an individual. What doesn't get spoken about is how 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 many sacrifices football has made in their early life, you know, socially, to become professional footballers. It's such a difficult industry to get into. And a lot of players have sacrificed a lot of their time, a lot of their friendship groups just to become professional footballers at any level. Um, so in terms of the disparity between uh, what Premier League teams earn and what EFL clubs earn it's a huge difference but also what's a big disparity is the amount of money that is spent and I think if you look at the percentages that Premier League clubs are spending their money at in terms of in terms of wages on a, on, a, on a bigger picture they're actually probably spending more of their income than a, than some EFL clubs so they're almost in the same boat and that's why it's so difficult to put pressure on these top clubs to, um, to, pay, to pay their way for lower clubs in the, in the pyramid because they've actually been operating in such a short-term process themselves that they're under pressure, just as much pressure as, as smaller clubs as well.
0: Liam, a, a lot of the discussion around how football could be restarted and how the season could be finished is centred around the proposition of playing games behind closed doors. Uh, it seems on the face of it to be a sensible um, idea on the basis that uh, season could be completed, clubs won't lose as much money because the broadcast deal can be potentially fulfilled, etc., etc. et cetera. Although we are excluding the, I think, fundamental part of the game here with what do the fans think about that? Um, and also risking the possibility of mass gatherings of people, which are currently banned, of course, outside of football grounds where a game is being played behind closed doors. Now, you will have spoken to many more players than I have in the last few weeks about the nature of whether closed doors is a plausible um, way to get around or, or at least solve this problem. But every player I've spoken to, has effectively said to me, I would rather not play the game at all than play it without fans. Is that the kind of feeling you get as well? And and, and even yourself, as a recently retired professional, is that your own feeling that, you know, we're being very, very uh, selfish and potentially um, negative about what the fans want with regards to seeing their team play if indeed
1: those games go ahead? Yeah, it's a, it's a sport. For the fans without supporters football wouldn't exist and i think that's been um been shown in the last few weeks and months of how important the lifeblood of of this sport is 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 the supporters you know the paying fans they are the lifeblood of of this sport um but what i would say is and and at the beginning of our conversation i said about being adaptable if completing the season means that we are saving football clubs so that there is a club for 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 fans to support in the in the coming years and it, it prevents teams going into administration or even going completely bust, then as someone who is within the game, I'm willing to do that because there is so much on the line financially for teams at the moment in terms of promotion to the Premier League, in terms of where they finish. If we don't complete the league in any way and, and clubs go bust or become, go into administration, we've got to look at the bigger picture. So I completely agree that playing games behind closed doors is, is quite far from ideal. And um, without without supporters being there, it's a completely different atmosphere. But at the same time, if we don't be adaptable and willing to to give up and compromise, then then I feel like a lot of clubs are in danger of going bust and I'm not being there anymore for, t- for for fans to support over the next 10, 20, 30 years. So there has to be a degree of understanding and empathy for the situation we're in um, from players, coaches, supporters, Board members and, and hopefully we can work collaboratively to, for the best outcome of our game.
2: Well, I, I think from from having watched some of the closed doors games we, we saw before um, football was suspended, it, it's gonna be it's gonna be very interesting to see how supporters respond to a sustained period of watching these closed door games. And and I'm just from a kind of academic view, how how the football um, works in that environment where you take away the home support and the, the difference it makes in, in terms of the outcome of the matches. And obviously you've got an integrity of, of competition issue. If if uh, a team is prevented, I, I think Sheffield United in an example here, they, they miss a game. Um, one of the, the games where they've got the opportunity to get into Champions League qualifying positions against a strong pro- opponent at home, which they'll, they'll probably end up um, playing behind closed doors which is obviously a, a significant disadvantage but um, in your career Liam did you ever have to play a match behind closed doors or or coach in a, in a closed doors match?
1: Uh, for, Fortunately for me no I haven't and, and I have watched behind closed doors games and they are completely different atmosphere to what we want in the game you know home away support the element of atmosphere they actually make the games so much better to watch they they are a Fans, I've always said in my career, I don't think fans sometimes realise what a huge influence they can have on the outcome of a football match. Um, I've been away at massive clubs and you, you step out onto the pitch, you hear the noise of the crowd and you know it's going to be a difficult day. And, and, and from a positive aspect, when you're at home and you've been on a good run of form, you almost feel invincible because of the backing you get from the fans. So without that, it's, it, it's almost a really artificial way of playing the game. Um, but like I said before, it's not, this is this the situation we're in is, is I don't want to be scaremongering, but it's quite dire in terms of mm. our, our finances of our football clubs that supporters players coaches have to be aware of the the duty we have to keep this wonderful sport going um, and if that means playing games behind closed doors in a short term for however long that takes then that's what and that's the only answer the only outcome that's possible then that's what we have to be willing to do
2: what would you, what would your prediction be as to who, which teams would benefit from playing behind closed doors, and which would uh, which would be disadvantaged by it?
1: I think I think um, if you're talking from a technical tactical point of view, I think teams that are, are better with the ball, I think teams that have a better technical um, style, uh, possession style of football, will probably um, uh, enjoy. The fact there's no pressure, especially away from home, being able to pass the ball and take the ball and 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 dominate games with possession. But I think you made a really good point about Sheffield United um, in terms of their home form this year, in terms of the the atmosphere they've generated at Bramwell Lane. They will lose out. And but again, we're we're in unprecedented times where I think these these factors they, they just they can't even be thought about at the moment because there is there's such a bigger picture to think about.
2: Yes, I think um, I think I think your point is absolutely correct on this. It's we're we're in a situation where the compromises have to be made, um, and I think I think Germany is interesting here because Germany are targeting being the first league to come out of suspension, and uh, are very actively targeting being the first league to complete. Um, they already have their players back in, in training. Um, and uh, I'm told are now they're now uh, some of the clubs are using antibody testing on their players to see if they've had um, coronavirus on a almost daily basis in order to facilitate this entry into a restart, which the the chief executive of the Bundesliga is suggesting could be as early as next month. They fully expect all of the games to be paid, played behind closed doors. And in, in fact, the chief executive is saying he thinks that the next season of the Bundesliga will also be behind closed doors with, with spectators unlikely to return until January. So, um, I think that that gives a sense of the, the degree of, of compromise that's being made by probably the best prepared league in Europe. To try and sort out the financial problems they have and, and preserve the, the TV revenue, which is also important to sustaining their league and their clubs.
1: That's a great point. I think in terms of um, organisation and structure, I think uh, the German nation in general they're they're, they're the forerunners in in in, in Europe and pro- pro- probably the world. And um, one thing I would say in the bigger picture in, in terms of Germany is I think they're the, the best equipped they in terms of testing. Not just footballers, but society in general for this, for for COVID 19. I think they've been the best equipped. So it's really interesting to follow how they're dealing with their situation in their their respective league. Um, It's not ideal again, but as you say, the TV money and the prize money is literally sustaining clubs that are operating on such a short term level. And if we want clubs to continue to to exist, then then we need to, to, to find the best solution to do that.
0: Liam, I think it's interesting, something that we haven't... We've touched on in this conversation, um, not specifically, but we have touched on it um, in in certain ways, and that is the importance of football to the social fabric of society, not just in this country, in in the UK, but all over the world. And you made the point uh, earlier about how football can unite people. And I'm wondering... you know, the impact on uh, a society recovering from this unprecedented situation of being able to watch their football team play, whether it's on television or behind closed doors, whether uh, the fact that that will instill not just a sense of inspiration um, in terms of um, thank God we've got our football back, type thing. But but maybe more importantly, a sense of normality, returning to society, because like almost like players that we've talked about having that focus of you know playing on a Tuesday, Wednesday night or a Saturday, you know fans have that same expectation and excitement about watching their team play um, on those games as well. And um, I think people are kind of maybe uh, and, and I, I say people, but I mean as the people who we hear talking a lot uh, during this period, and that's politicians and opinion givers, et etc. et cetera. Maybe they don't quite relate as well as football fans to just how important that aspect is to um, uh, an ordinary person's week in, week out uh, well-being, being able to talk about the football, watch the football, debate the football, et etc. Et and that's something that... You know, maybe should be taken into account in having the discussions that everyone's having in these opinion-giving forums.
1: Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head, and I think you're you're absolutely right. I think um, one of the biggest um, things that I've I've found at the moment, speaking to not just people within the game, but my good friends from from even school, is they just miss the miss the the fact that they can speak about a loss for their club or a win for their club and, and debate. Um, football in general and that's why I go back to the point about the bigger picture that what football does for society, it does bring a normality back, it it does bring people together in terms of whether they're able to speak in person at the moment which isn't possible or on social media or, or call each other or speak, it's a huge topic of discussion throughout our country and throughout pretty much every country on the planet so for me the sooner we can get back to playing games and giving people, giving back in terms of my job as a coach within the game um, my duty is obviously for, for my club to win football matches, but my bigger duty is I know what a big part of football has to play in the community. You know, young children they're, who are their first role models, more, 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 more often than not, they're, they're professional footballers. So if we can give something back and give, shed a, give a little bit of light back into a really, really difficult time by playing football, then, then, then that's a great thing that we're doing.
0: Now going back to Derby County, uh, um, Liam, obviously you have uh, had the privilege, I think would be fair to say, of working with uh, England's record goal scorer, Mr Wayne Rooney, uh, since January this year. Obviously that's been curtailed by recent events. Um, but he's also uh, has made known his um, desire to be a coach something which some people have been sceptical about with regards to René's um, uh, aptitude for a, a job like that, despite his massive experience. But I understand that you've been very impressed by um, his attitude, by the way he has addressed the possibility of becoming a, a coach and indeed by his day-to-day um, sort of uh, inquisitiveness if you like regarding uh, what your job's about and uh, and how he might learn and uh,
1: and progress yeah he's been an absolute pleasure since he's um, set foot into the football club um, and not only just on, on the pitch and his performances but off the pitch as well and the great thing for me is, is um, I want to be the best coach I can possibly be and, and one day coach and manage at the very highest level is when you work with top top players you, you understand why they've had the success in the career that they have done. And in, in Wayne's case, he is obsessed with football. Um, he, he loves the game. Uh, he wants to learn from the tactical details of the game, key moments in games, um, set plays, any, any part of the game, which you can improve as a team. He's consistently asking questions. He, he consistently um, analyzing games in, in particular with, with myself and the coaches we have in the coach's office. And, um, that's why he is the player that he is and, and, and had the career that he's done is he's, he's obsessed by football and absolutely loved the game loves the game and I think he's at a place now where he sees that his career is coming to the to the twilight of it, of, of its time and, and he still wants to be involved in football and I think the reason he wants to be involved in football is not for his ego it's because he loves the game so much and wants to give something back
2: How long do you see him continuing to to play at this level given um what you've seen from a training perspective and a, an on-field perspective during his time at Derby County?
1: Um, I, think, I think that's a question that you can only ask Wayne. Um, I played with a player um, at Brighton, Bruno, uh, Bruno Sultor, who played until he was 39. And because of his understanding of the game and his reading of the game, he can manage his body. And I think Wayne is such a, uh, a gifted footballer. From a from a purist point of view, you don't realise how good he is until you see him every day in training. His reading of the game is first class. So, um, in terms of his running ability, that that's always difficult. But if you can put play, players in and around him, that can that can help him with that side of the game. I think it would just be up to him and, and how he manages himself for, for how long he can play. For me, he's got a good few years left in in him, um, and and it's up to him. But um, in terms of me giving a, a time frame on it, I don't think that's, that's fair. Um, I think that's so, solely down to Wayne and, and he'll feel when, when the time is right for him to stop.
2: Where is he in terms of it, his coaching badges? and have you, um, have you discussed that process of the, the studying and, uh, and the work that goes into becoming um, a professional coach with Wayne?
1: Yeah, yeah, we've spoken about it more more times than not. And I, I'm more than happy to you know, give my insights and in my experiences. Um, I think I was one of the youngest um, coaches to ever complete a pro licence while I was still playing. So he's always asking me about the, the process. He's, he's currently halfway through his A licence at the moment. Um, but in my experience, um, especially this last year at Derby, it's, um, it's more about the experiential experience that you get so in terms of my learning, most of my learn, I've learned so much in the last year that you, you could not learn on a, on, a, on a license course. And a lot of people speak about readiness of being a coach or a manager. I, th- I think you just need to be prepared. And, and in Wayne's case, I think he's been prepared for a long time to be a coach or a manager. And I think he, he's looking forward to getting on the pro license as soon as possible, just to be qualified in order to put himself in a position to be a manager in, in the near future.
2: So, so two questions. What, what age were you when you got your pro licence? And also, how have you found the difference from working with the second team at Brighton mm. um, or the under-23s at Brighton to stepping up to working with the first team on a daily basis in this first season at uh, Derby County?
1: Yeah, um, I was 32 uh, when I, when I, when I um, finished my pro licence um, and to your second question, um, the biggest difference is the short-term pressures of winning football matches. Um, I'm, I'm, I believe in the process. I'm process-driven. So in terms of my day-to-day, how I address the players, how I work with the players, there's not a big change. Um, I think whether you're coaching under 23 in academy team or a first team, I think your first thought has to be the players, an individual player's development and then a the collective development and, and improvement in performance, and that gets you the results. Um, I spoke about clubs working in the, in the short term um, from a financial point of view, and there's a lot of pressure in the short term of, of getting results on a Saturday afternoon for sure. But if you're not a coach that's willing to look at the bigger picture and improve over a certain period of time, you're not going to have consistent success. So in terms of my process, I haven't changed um, how, I, how I address the players, what I look for in a player. Um, how I want to improve them, not just over the short term, but in the long term. But the biggest factor is is gaining result, results in the short term as well.
0: Liam, just a, a, if you can give us a little bit of an insight into day-to-day um, interaction with uh, with Wayne in the sense of um, I was lucky enough to sort of uh, work in journalism through his, throughout his career. But since he kind of burst onto the scene, obviously, in the early two thousands, all the way through to Captain England, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and there was never a dull moment. To be fair, um, with with uh, Wayne um, people don't give him credit for his very, very uh, uh, succinct and sharp sense of humour. I think it's probably quite a, a normal thing among scousers, but you don't see it very often in, in his public uh, kind of uh, press conferences, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but I suspect he's probably. Um, quite an asset in the dressing room and in training and everything else with regards to the other players as much as he is in a playing sense on the field.
1: Yeah, he, he's a huge asset um, in terms of the day-to-day workings with him. We, we try not to put too much pressure on him. We know he has a huge job in terms of playing, um, playing the game. But it's, So it's very informal. So it's as and when he wants to come in um, to, the, to the coach's office and discuss it. our door is always open. You know, we, we, we ask him for his opinion and his feedback on certain areas of the game or even sometimes how we can help certain players. But we don't put pressure on him to be in all of our meetings all of the time. And I think then you create a really natural environment for him. Uh, what I would say about Wayne is he's an absolute pleasure to be around. Um, I think when you, someone of Wayne Rooney's um it, of his calibre and, and of his influence in, in our society, how, how many people. He's told me stories about paparazzi following him when he was 16 years old. I think when you've lived that type of life, you've always had to be guarded uh, in terms of your dealings with the media, and in terms of your dealings with, with the wider public. But when he's in, uh, in a safe place, uh, you know, in a coach, office, it's an absolute pleasure to be around. He's highly intelligent. He's really insightful. And he's got a really, as you say, a really sharp sense of humour and um, so he, he's great to be around he's always speaking to the younger players always coming up with ways to help them and he shows a natural um want and need to help younger players and, and want to improve them which i think is the key ingredient of, of being a successful coach we, we speak so much about winning games of football which yet that's what we're there to do but i think the main essence of being a coach is to help improve is a want and a need to help improve people not just on the pitch but off the pitch and i've, I've heard I well speak to players about Buying their first car, making sure it's, it's a safe car, it, it, just life lessons. And, and he's someone who wants to impart that wisdom and his experience onto younger players.
0: Just out of um, curiosity, what did you recommend? Was it the i8 or the Lamborghini?
1: <laughs> no, no, it was something, <laughs> um, it was something far, far more um, conservative um, and, and a smaller car. And he was talking about the size of, your, of an engine. Um, to one of the younger players and making sure it wasn't it wasn't anything too flashy because they haven't done anything with their career yet. And, and that's the type of advice that I think he's grown up at, first at Everton under David Moyes, really humble, grounded um, upbringing in terms of his own career. And then he went to a huge club at Manchester United with a manager who was all about and, and so Alex Ferguson was all about humility and, and, and always n- never being content and always wanting more. And and that's why that's why he's had the career he's had. And he, he wants to help players, especially young players, have that same mentality to reach their potential in their careers.
0: Well, that's magnificent. I mean, that's Wayne Rooney, England's record goal scorer, budding coach, and part-time car salesman <laughs> uh, to younger players <laughs> with regards to their ongoing safety. People I here at the Transfer Window podcast, we try to bring you knowledge. News that you didn't think you'd ever hear. Well, there you go. You've got some more today. We're going to end this particular podcast with our quick fire round. Uh, I'm going to ask Duncan and Liam uh, uh, under the just um, of a recent question uh, put out by a well known television channel to who named their top ten managers of the Premier League era. But I'm going to make it more difficult for uh, for both Duncan and Liam. I'm going to say. Take Fergie out of the equation. You're not allowed to say Fergie because clearly he is the number one. So the race is on top coach of the Premier League era, minus Sir Alex Ferguson, Duncan. Look, There's there's actually not very many candidates here, if you think about it, because... um, Well, I'm sure the candidates would disagree with you. Well,
2: (laughs) you're going to have to have won the Premier League for a start, and Ferguson... 13 titles as Manchester United manager and uh, the, the highest uh, behind him in terms of Premier League titles are Arsene Wenger and Jose Mourinho on three. Um, and Pep Guardiola has two. Um, I guess some people would want to put Jurgen Klopp into this equation, but I think you can't really make a case for someone who, if he's got a Premier League title, it's with an asterisk. Um, as yet. I mean, he, he is, he's won it this year. He's going to win it. He deserves to win it, but he's only won one. So then I, I think for me, it comes down to, you have the analysis of of Pep Guardiola and you've got to say, well, he did that with the most expensive squad in the history of the game. So better resources, an entire club designed around him and hasn't managed to win the Champions League um, with that squad so I'd, I'd, I'd mark him down a little for that. Um, I think Wenger, the invincibles and some of the best football we've ever seen um, from an aesthetic point of view um, from his teams, but didn't win uh, the Champions League, uh, Prem, uh, the Champions but, League but, European but title but in Dung his career. He, to,
0: be, to, to be fair, he did revolutionise the way that football was played in this country.
2: He changed the way football was played. He revolutionised diet, and I, but I think you know he was surpassed in terms of the the tactical side uh, by Jose Mourinho. He changed the way football w- operated in the country when he came in, and Wenger wasn't able to respond to that. Ferguson was. Ferguson copied and adapted, and won again. Um, so if you're, I think if you're looking for number two, given the records that 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 Chelsea team put up that he did it in two different spells. So he has three titles across two different spells. And albeit he didn't do it with Chelsea, but he has two European titles, one with um, you know the most marginal of teams to win a European title in the Champions League era at FC Porto. I think you've got to go for Mourinho there as, as second to Ferguson in the Premier League era. But maybe Liam has a far better argument than mine.
1: No, no, not far back. It's really interesting hearing here your point of view. Um, it's funny that you base um, a manager, manager's success on, on titles, which is completely understandable. But it co- kind of goes against my principle of, of what I said before. Is I think a coach's job is to maximise the potential of, of the group that he has. Um, yeah. And I think a few, a few managers have come to my mind in, in the way that their teams play. Uh, at the moment, I think um, Liverpool and Manchester City, in terms of their performances, in terms of their football, are setting the bar of the Premier League to something that we, we've never seen before. Um, I think they're, they're such good teams that I don't think we'll realise how good they actually are until, sadly, those their eras have passed again with, with Jürgen Kropp and, and Guardiola. Um, and, and for me, I think Arsene Wenger definitely deserves to be mentioned uh, for what he did because he didn't... What I like to to... To analyse is just the effect that managers have had on our game, and I think Arsene Wenger had a huge impact in terms of the way we see foreign players in our nutrition, our diet, and he had a huge effect on uh, many coaches coming up through through the system now. But I think in the, in the modern era, I think Jose Mourinho, um, his first spell at Chelsea, for him to come off the success he had at Porto and hit the ground running, and and with a young, at the time was a very young team at Chelsea. You know, John Terry was just coming into his prime. Frank Lampard, he signed Didier Drogba from Marseille. Unbelievable team that he he, got, he put together there. So I think for that first period, he's definitely in the equation. But if I'm going to speak now from a purely coaching point of view and watching the game, I, I think Jurgen Klopp and, and, and Guardiola have to be up there because what I love about the way that they play the game is they're fundamental. They're fundamental in what they believe in and the way the game should be played. And the, team that's, the teams that represent them try to go out every game that they play and, and fulfill that. So for me, in terms of my influence as a coach, and, and maybe I'm, I'm being a little bit biased because that Barcelona team that, that Guardiola had with likes Xavi and, and Iniesta and David Villa and Messi, I don't think he's got the credit he deserves. Uh, I know that the players he's had have been outstanding, the likes of Messi and, and the best players in the world. But to have that collaborative energy and spirit that his teams play with, you have to be an absolutely outstanding coach. So, in terms of that, I would still say that Pep Radiola is the um, other than Sir Alex Ferguson has had the biggest impact on, on our game.
0: Well, I'd say that we've certainly put the hornet in the bee's nest there <laughs> uh, with <laughs> I by I fair <laughs> get the equation. Uh, and uh, that's without even, of course, having any Watford managers available for uh, that particular accolade. Um, of course, we welcome uh, all of our listeners to get involved in the debate. Please tell us who your Premier League manager mm-hmm. of the era of the Premier League is, excluding Sir Alex Ferguson. Uh, Liam Rusnier has gone for Klopp Guardiola. Duncan in uh, at a remarkable uh, turn of events um, <laughs> as unknown by even yet undiscovered tribes. In the Amazon basin has gone for Josie Mourinho, uh, who knew he would say that. Uh, so please let us know where your um, allegiances and indeed opinions lie. Uh, we will, uh, as always, uh, engage you on our Twitter account, Facebook, Instagram, which is at Transfer Podcast. Uh, Duncan um, is on at Duncan Castles. I'm on at Garbo SJ. And Liam, you're on Twitter also at.
1: Liam liamrosenior17 is that correct um i think i don't even know my own twitter handle i think that shows how much i know i think it's um at liam underscore rosinior23 that's
0: the one sorry indeed it is so you do know it. so that was that's uh you know <laughs> in these in these times when we w- lots of things are being forgotten that's a a very sort of uh reassuring <laughs> aspect that you did manage to remember um We will be back next week with the Transfer Wonder podcast. Uh, We want to say thank you once again uh, to all of our community for our shortlist to be podcast of the year, Scottish Press Awards, um, proving that, you know, you can bring um, intelligent analysis and information about football without having to get involved in shouty rants, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, and gain uh, that amount. Of um, people who want to listen to it which we are grateful for and will be as always to our listeners also want to thank Liam Rossini for joining us today it's been fantastic Liam to get your insight into um, both uh, what you're doing day to day and also of course the coaching side of things uh, we hope to speak to you soon and thank you very much for joining us